Hello everyone, welcome back to Gamers Gambit with your hosts, Al and Wayne. So how's it going today, Wayne? Just going wonderful, just wonderful. So are you ready to feel old? Oh, my arms, my back, my neck, oh, oh, it all hurts, it all hurts. Yes, after these first two stories, we're probably going to start screaming, you darn kids, get off my lawn! Because our top story is the Game Boy. This year, it turns 30. 30. Yes. Wow. Three decades. Too old. It's too old. Yes, and I guess the reason that it, it makes me feel old because, I mean, I actually clearly remember when I first... Uh, heard about the Game Boy and this new system Nintendo was coming out with because before the Game Boy do you remember those whole old uh, Tiger Electronics handhelds? The ones you couldn't win? The ones that just kept going and going? Yep. It's so there. Did you actually ever have any of those back when you were a kid? Not really, no. We just we saw other people have them. They were great. Yeah, because I had Double Dragon, a friend of mine had Gauntlet, and I've seen a couple others. Like, I I had one friend that had the Simon's Quest one, and I know I've seen a couple others here and there, but uh, those are just the three that stick out for me. And I remember back then, my idea of portable gaming was either those Tiger Electronics handhelds, or remember you had the things like Simon Cell, Simon Simon Cells, Simon Says. Mm, I would I would see the game called Simon Cells. I don't I don't know what that's going to be about. <laughs> but I remember because I was reading in, I'm wanting to say it was Electronic Gaming Monthly. They had an article where they were talking about this new system that Nintendo was creating, where it was a portable system that would had interchangeable games. And I remember reading about that, and I'm like, I just thought that was the, you know, in my 13-year-old mind, I just thought that was the coolest sounding thing, that they were coming out with this little handheld dev gaming device that not only would let you play games, but you could actually switch out the cartridges. Because, again, at this time, of course, we were just so used to, I mean, I didn't know at the time, I didn't think it was possible that they could make the cartridges that small, so... Shows you how much I know, right? Mm, how much we all know. Yep. I'm just saying because it's like those the the Game Boy was nobody had ever seen anything quite like it yet. It it looked like a Tiger device in some ways, just a giant thing of plastic, and those things were durable. Oh my god. Yeah, I've I mean I've heard a couple of stories about. You know, people whose Game Boys were like through house fires or other disasters and they still worked. And I even remember uh, there was a, I'm wanting to say it was around the time of uh, Gulf War One. I. I remember someone wrote into Nintendo Power that they brought a Game Boy overseas with them and it survived an attack by 
uh, you know, enemy forces. So yeah, those things could actually be pretty durable and their battery life was actually a lot better than some of the other devices that came out to compete against it. Oh, do you know of any? Do you know of any of these famed devices? Well, the ones I remember, because I know there was the Atari Lynx, and yep. then there was the, okay, what was the Sega one? The um, Game Gear. The Game Gear, yes, because I remember there was the cartoon about how they were trying to make the big deal out of the fact that, you know, the Game Boy was black and white, but wearing color. And, wearing color. And I think... I think I have, yeah, I have played Game Gear before. My roommate in college had one. It wasn't a bad little system. The only complaints I had that I heard people had about it is the battery life sucked on those things. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess now, the oh, good. Do you know the Do you know the third one that took a little while longer to come out? I didn't. SNK have a portable one as well. Mm, nope, not SNK. Atari. Well, wait, I mentioned the Atari Lynx. Okay, well, what's the other one? Because, yeah, the only other one I can think of off the top of my head at this time is the Atari Lynx. The NEC TurboGrafx Portable. Okay, I didn't know they had a portable, but then again, uh, TurboGrafx never really caught on as much in the States as it did in other places. Nope, but it it did have one of the first 16, well, not true 16-bit, but 16-bit handhelds. And it even had a TV tuner also. Hmm. Yeah, and the I know the Lynx uh, came out around this time as well. Uh, well, you know, a little bit after the Game Boy. And, you know, I remember that uh, people didn't... I guess the, the Lynx wasn't as well received as the Game Boy was because it was a bit... Clunky. I've heard they were a bit clunky to hold. And the battery life was far worse than the Game Boy was. Yeah, no, then that was that was one of the big issues with those. That's why Nintendo, even though uh, Game Boy was, um, you know, not in color or anything, the games were pretty easy to look at. There weren't like this whole, oh, it's ugly for for what they were. I mean, remember, some computer monitors still in schools because we hadn't taken off with the new PCs, most people were still looking at monochrome Apple IIEs and Apple IICs, you know what I mean? They were still, you know, going with that. So the graphics weren't weren't necessarily all that bad. And just, the, like you said, battery life. I mean, you could play that thing for hours and then either pick up rechargeable batteries or just pick up a new set of batteries. Yeah, and, it, and of course I did have the AC adapter as well. And, I mean, I have to say... Probably the most memorable Game Boy game for me was probably the the Super Mario World that they wrote. Well, no, it was Super Mario Land, wasn't it? Yeah, Super Mario Land. Yeah, because I remember having a lot of fun with that one, and of course Tetris. And I because I think okay, because I know Tetris was a packing game for a while, and wasn't tennis also a packing game for a little bit too? That I'm not sure. I just know Tetris. Oh yeah, and I'm, and that's actually one of the things that got me started in, in in getting interested in Tetris. And I know there's people that have made you know various YouTube videos about Tetris and how, in some ways, it's one of the most perfect or it's a game with unlimited replay because 
it's one of those games that you can play however you want in whatever style you want. You know, if you want to be more high risk, for example, you could let the pieces pile up and just hope that you would eventually get the, uh, you know, that you would eventually get the, uh, you know, the, the piece that you need to make a four line, uh, you know, four line block, or you could play it safe. And okay, so I just pulled up uh, the Wikipedia article. And according to that with Game Boy, I came with one of several games. So again, guess depending on the time that uh, you got it, either Super Mario Land, Tetris, or Tetris. So, um, Super Mario Land, Tetris, or Tetris. I mean, th- those are pretty good options. Yeah, I thought, or it says, or among them. So, hmm. Okay, so it doesn't say what else there was, but because they had the launch title Super Mario Land, Alleyway, Baseball. Uh, see, there's a Japan only one, then Tetris and Tennis, which, you know, I never understood why they would put tennis as a or any kind of kind of sports game as a pack-in because i guess the way i've always seen it those games have somewhat of a limited appeal uh because not i mean tetris is nice because it's a kind of game that anyone can get into but i don't know personally i just think not every a game like tennis or baseball just doesn't have the universal appeal that you know something like tetris would have oh come on you mean you don't dream of tennis I can't say I do. I'm sorry, but oh well. I know yeah. in every every child's heart, all dreams of tennis. Yes. So, if you want to feel even older, do you remember a little game company called SNK? I do. Do you remember a little uh, a, a very large system called the SNK Neo Geo? Why, yes, I do remember the Neo Geo. And SNK is, they've recently released the their 40th anniversary collection. It's going to be coming to Xbox One, though I actually was at GameStop uh, last week and picked it up for the Switch. So, and I know I do have one of the compilation discs they released for the Wii. So I'd have to say that, I mean, SNK is not my favorite game publisher. That would go to probably either uh, Square Enix, Capcom, or Konami, but they're they're definitely within my top five or top ten because they yeah. did make a lot of good games. I know at least in the arcades they were most well known for their fighting games, and Fatal Fury was one of my favorite games. I also enjoyed Samurai Showdown. Now the and the uh, the compilation disc I have for the Wii. That focuses mostly on their fighters. Uh, there's a few sports games, and then some of their shooters. Now, one of the things that's cool about the Switch version of the 40th Anniversary Collection, and I'm sure they'll do this with other uh, systems they release it for as well, but for some of the games like the Akari Warriors games, they give you the option to play either the NES version or the arcade version. So I thought that was a nice little touch. Oh, yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, I never played the Akari Warriors uh, in the arcade. I know I played it on Nintendo. Just looking over the list here, Athena, I remember, was kind of interesting. Uh, Uh, The uh, Athena on the NES is 
horrible. <laughs> <laughs> the arcade game is worse. I tried playing the arcade version, and it's like I died within like two or two seconds. Um, let's see. The only one of note that I can find is Crystallis. Was always was an interesting uh, game to me. I, I did really enjoy that one. Yeah, I actually, remember you got that for me for my birthday one year. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed Crystallis and. I had a very good music score as well as being just a fun game. I mean, I think it's one of it's one of those games that's got a little bit of a re, limited replay value. Uh, there's not really much different you can do between the different, um, you know, between your different playthroughs. But it's still it's one of those games that's kind of fun to go back and, and pop in every now and then. Oh, and look, the Xbox One version gets baseball stars. Woo! I don't think that actually, and I don't think that version was on the Switch version. I'm pretty sure it was on the 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 version they released on the Wii. But and also is interesting because it goes back and it takes it it has some of the really early arcade games on there as well, including a few that, as far as I know, were probably not released in the states. It's going to be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend it if you are a fan of classic games. I mean, I would almost argue that Crystallis alone is almost worth the entire amount of money you're probably going to pay for it, uh, which for the Switch it was 40 I'm not sure how much they're going to charge for the Xbox version. But at least, I mean, even eventually when the price comes down, when you see it on the secondary market, I mean, if you can see it somewhere for like 20 bucks, I would definitely recommend picking it up. Uh, Akari Warriors 2 is probably my favorite of the Akari Warriors games. And that yeah. one I remember, the the NES version was actually better, at least in my opinion, than the arcade one. Uh, mainly because yeah. in the NES version you actually had a life bar. So it wasn't the one hit and you die like all the like the other the previous Akari Warriors game was. And and that actually surprised me when I tried playing the uh the arcade version because it was one hit and you die. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and of course with uh, with SNK, the other thing that was weird with a lot of their games, they had that weird control stick where, remember, it was like instead of the top being that little ball that just fit neatly in the palm of your hand, it was a cylinder, and it would turn. And that was actually, as far as I know, that was pretty revolutionary for the time. Because remember, you had games like Akari Warriors where you know, you could, like, say, move backwards while, you know, firing to the left. Or oh, yeah, because you could, you could aim while moving, so you can strafe pretty much. Yeah, and unfortunately, that feature didn't quite come out as well on the Switch. I always have problems using it, so I don't know. I might have to try maybe try with the... Uh, you know, the regular controls, but still definitely worth a look if you're interested in classic arcade games. Agreed. So the next story is unfortunately a little bit of a downer in some ways, and it was about a study that was done by the, uh, see, the university, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, as well as University of California, Davis, and another Norwegian college, St. Olaf's Hospital. So the survey says, now what they did is they took a look at how video games impacted social development uh, among preteen kids. And 
for the most part, for boys, not really that much of an impact. However, unfortunately, it seems to have somewhat of a negative impact on on girls. So apparently, when when younger girls play more video games, it tends to it tends to impact their social development. Now, did you get a chance to read the article? A little bit. It was very very interesting and kind of kind of shows. I mean, I don't know if it's the same way nowadays, but I know back when we were well, I was a kid. I think it was around the same time. You know, gaming was always, for video games, was mainly for the boys. The girls didn't really get into it very much, and that just seemed to be the way it was. You know, I think you make a good point, and that's one of the things they also touch upon in the article, is that being a, a big video game fan, it's not still considered socially normal for girls, which is probably one of the reasons why the study had the some of the results it did. Now, again, not of course not saying that, you know, girls don't and women don't play video games. I mean, I have a couple female friends that are big video game fans, but I don't know. Now, do you have any, do you happen to have any theories or ideas as to why you think we have this stigma in our society that video games are primarily a boy's thing or a guy's thing and why maybe girls or women tend to shy away from video games? It's going to sound weird, but competitive aspect okay. a little bit. It's because guys usually do more sports a little bit, right? I mean, it's not totally normal because I know women who are definitely into sports and definitely into women's sports. But, you know, the video game stuff is a little bit can be a little bit more competitive, a little bit more that where when a girl is growing up aren't more of her kind of things aimed at her more cooperative more i don't i don't know how to explain it like i i think i i see what you're getting at more of a work together as opposed to work against each other yeah and when you're looking at it it's more you know work together to fulfill a goal if you look at any of the old two player games they're one at a time usually you know there's not a lot of not a lot of co-op there are in some games but for most of it it's like who gets the better score who gets farther who can you know who can finish the level fastest where you know there's not a lot of i guess cooperation versus you know it's cooperation versus competition where I think there's a change currently that we're seeing in society. But I think for a while there and even going further until those kind of things are kind of changed and turned over on their head as it were, you know what I mean? It's still going to, the social restraints of gaming are going to still be seen because it's just not how people view it, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's really and... hard to form that opinion in your mind and put it into words. It's yeah. like, without sounding totally <laughs> misogynistic. Yeah, and I, and I get what you're saying. And I think part of it is also, uh, for the most part, a lot of times video games do tend to be a bit more marketed towards men. Uh, yeah. Because... 
you look at the you know the some of the more well-known video game protagonists out there you know you got Mario, Link, uh Sonic. You know, they're probably just three of my can name off the top of my head. Well, Akari Warriors, we just talked about them, you know, the game featuring two big buff guys running around without shirts. So, you tended to have this greater emphasis on male protagonists. And of course, not to say there aren't female protagonists. You know, of course, Samus Aran being a good example. Uh, well, with, with Mass Effect, I know in that one, uh, you can choose. Shepard can be either a male or female. And, you know, I think as the as we started to move into the disc-based age, you did have more freedom to choose your character where you could choose to be a character that was either, you know, a male character or a female character. And, I mean, I do hope that the trend reverses where we get to a point where we start to see that, okay, hey, there's absolutely nothing wrong with women playing video games, and hopefully that will, like I say, I just hope that that trend does reverse itself in the in the coming years. And honestly, well, I, I, I think, think it, it will. Well, I think it already has. The problem okay. is is that, I think women in general need to accept it as well. Like, I think everybody, I have had a friend I worked with who ran a gaming podcast pretty much, um, who she was, she was pretty good into gaming or whatnot, but at, at the same time, did everybody, you know, accept that and everything? I don't know. I never talked to her about that, but at the same time, I think a lot of people where at one point, you, you know, you go, you play video games. People are just like, yeah, all right, because okay. I mean, I I still get like, you know, kind of like going, oh, you, you're a player, all right. So the next story is a little bit of an opposite of the previous story, where they said there's this unfortunate study showing that uh, video games aren't as good for girls as they are for boys. However, there's a student from La Canada uh, School that wants to try to find ways to for teachers to explore the use of Minecraft as a classroom tool and a teaching tool. Now, were you, did you ever get much into Minecraft or was that a game game that you never really uh, ex- explored? Everybody wanted to use mods for Minecraft, so I had no real interest in modding and doing all this other stuff with it. It was just too much effort. Um, I've, I've got Minecraft on both PC and on my PS4, and I enjoy it when I want to f- try to feel creative. But the problem is, is I've never been good at the building type thing. So <laughs> <laughs> I get I get so far and then it's like, oh, all right, bored now. <laughs> yeah. So the a uh, little bit more on the, the stories from the L.A. the L.A. Times. High school freshman uh, Devin O., a devotee of the computer game Minecraft, uh, thinks that the use of online gaming is an idea worth exploring in the classroom. And he it sounds like it's part of an Eagle Scout project that he's doing, where the example that they he gave is that, see, it looks like he spoke to uh, some teachers and they had a lesson plan about volcanoes. And then what they, they did is they, they put together a Minecraft uh, a version of Minecraft that would allow the teacher to use, you know, Minecraft as a way to teach kids about volcanoes. 
So I thought that was interesting because this is actually a topic I have talked about before. It's one of my earlier podcasts, but I did an episode called Can Games Be Used to Teach? And my personal opinion is that I think that, yes, games can be used as a teaching tool. Now, of course, you still have to be careful with how you pull it off. There was one game I read about. Uh, it was called, it was about slave trading. And there was one scene in the game that attracted a bit of controversy because the object of the game was to get slaves from Africa to the New World. And one of the mini games you played is was a version of Tetris, except the pieces were, you know, the, the, the pieces were, you know, the slaves. And you had to I'm try to think. inside. <laughs> but, and, see, and the thing is, I can understand, yeah, and a lot of people, it's like, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of cringeworthy. But then the designer said, and I honestly, once I, he explained this, I think I saw it from his point of view, and I it did make sense. Okay, like I said, maybe it could have been pulled off a little more tastefully, but he was trying to use that as an example to show just how inhumane the slave trade yeah. could be because that's what they did. They tried to find a way to pack as many people into those slave ships as they possibly could. Yep. So yeah, that's, that is the truth there. So I, I do hope that this does gain traction and that I, I think it would be interesting if more teachers did use, find way, try to find ways to use games as teaching tools, because I don't know about you, but I remember when I was in kid, uh, did you ever play Math Blaster in school? Nope. Yep, that was one that I remember we got to play uh, sometimes when I was in elementary school. And then, of course, who could forget? You have died of dysentery on the Oregon Trail. I am just going to ask, because I just learned this the other day. I don't know where I learned this, but did you know there's a handheld version of Oregon Trail? It does not surprise me at all. I, I'm... And the, that's right on the box. You have died of dysentery. <laughs> so, like I said, good on you, Devin O, and I hope your project uh, turns out to be very successful, and I hope you get that Eagle Scout rank. I am sure, of course, the guy's probably not listening to us, but in case you are, great job. Exactly. Now, occasionally I'll read an article, and I'll read it about a game, and I'm like, I gotta play that game. This is something that I'm really going to look forward to. That's how I felt when I read an article about an upcoming game, Star Wars Fallen Order. So the game is due for release in November. Uh, it's going to be released by EA, of course. And the concept of the game... So you're playing as a new character, Cal Kestis. And the objective is that you're a Padawan who survived the, the Order 66. So what were your impressions when you uh, read the article or saw the trailer for this new game? My first thing is, why don't they just go and slap the crap out of Amy Henning? Just like, just go, look, we hired you for no reason at all. I just, we just wanted to waste your time. Oh, by the way, hopefully you know that all these assets in this game probably ripped off your game. It's fine. We're all fine here. Okay, who's uh, who's Amy Henning? Amy Henning, uh, she's the uh, developer of Uncharted, 
for PlayStation. Okay. So Uncharted 1, Uncharted 2, and then uh, she was for Uncharted was it Uncharted 3 and was there a 4 or was it just Uncharted 3 that was the last one? I forget. But I... Um, she was taken off of there and then she went to EA actually to start her own Star Wars game, which pulled assets from Star Wars 1313, I believe it was called, which was going to be an interesting game located on Coruscant. She was going to have a Uncharted-like single-player game that she was working on, then she got hers canceled. And now just out of the blue respawn, they, they picked up this game now, uh, which is a single player game, which EA constantly keeps on telling us that they don't want to make. So I'm hoping myself that it's an okay game, but if, if I'm right, most of the assets are from previous games just thrown in the dumpster that Respawn was able to do whatever they wanted with and make their own game. Hmm. And I hope that's not true, but at the same time, uh, we also won't get a Titan. From what I understand, they scrapped Titanfall 3 so that they could start working on this game. I just... my, my To get excited for this game and anything Star Wars related from EA... I, I just can't do it, man. I just can't. Yeah. Well, hopefully EA learned from the whole debacle over uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2. But yeah, I do remember the... I, I do remember we did talk about 1313 before and how it was supposed to be like the dark, seedy underbelly of the Star Wars universe. So yeah, that would have been an awesome game, I think. But... I still, again, I still think this sounds like a pretty, like an interesting game. Uh, it mentions that the article mentions that you've got a a small roid. The article mentions a, you have a, a small a roid. A small roid. <laughs> <laughs> you've got steroids, and that's how the Jedi get their powers. I was thinking hemorrhoids. <laughs> <laughs> I, I okay, so yeah, I think if given a choice, I'd rather get my powers from uh, steroids than hemorrhoids. But anyways. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so it include your character has a droid with him, and the game is said to uh, focus on single-player action as well as platforming and some problem-solving. So I think that could be interesting because it sounds like the, you know, your droid companion might be used in some of the problem-solving. So, again, time will tell how the game turns out, but I'm looking forward to it, and I might consider getting it when it does come out. It would have. I I will not pre-order it. I will wait till all the reviews are in, and I won't even listen. I won't listen to critic reviews on this one. I'm going to go directly to Metacritic to user reviews to actually read it and see if it's actually good. I do like Respawn. I mean, the Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the first one. You know, I don't do first-person shooters all the time, but that was pretty good. Uh, Titanfall, I've heard nothing but good things about, even though, for whatever reason, EA seems to keep on trying to kill that franchise, which mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? So the the company behind EA, it's just, I can't imagine EA not trying to mess this up or stick microtransactions in it. They've said they won't, but look at, you know, Fallout 76. 
they said they won't put pay-to-win mechanics in there, and they had to do it because their game sucks so bad. Look at look at Anthem, that piece of trash that's walking on air. You just can't. I don't know. I just. I hope it's good. I just have this entire thought process that what is this Frankenstein of a game going to look like? Yeah. Well, like I said, we'll see what it, we'll we'll see what it looks like in November. And so again, sounds like you're probably going to wait until it comes to this secondary market. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mostly. <laughs> so our next story is about Apple, and this was uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read the article or not. Is this was a late edition? to the the outline that I made because I was just uh because yesterday I was or a couple days ago I was uh, just doing general web browsing and I came across the story I'm like you know we should probably uh we should probably cover this it's about Apple and they're cracking down on apps that limit screen time now you might wonder what does this have to do on a show about gaming well as we know the mobile phone market is becoming an actual gaming platform and you know we have talked about the freemium and the free-to-play games in the past so to quote the article over the past year Apple has removed or restricted at least 11 of the 17 most downloaded screen time and parental control apps according to an analysis by the New York Times and Sensor Tower an app data firm Apple has also clamped down on a number of lesser-known apps in some cases, Apple forced companies to remove features that allowed parents to control their children's devices or that blocked children's access to certain apps and adult content. In other cases, it simply pulled the apps from the store. Okay, what was your reaction when you first heard about this? A mm, chew of them. It's like, no duh. After Apple's last announcement, you know, they want to make the arcade. They want to make, like you said, an ecosystem for gaming on, on their devices. And they want to make, you know, the iPhone pretty much your, the iPhone, the iPad, you know, all those devices, the only ones that you use. And microtransactions nowadays, which, you know, most apps are full of, those make Apple some big money. So why they'd want apps limiting time for your addicts to and whales to give money unto the hordes and make Apple money that goes kind of against, you know, what they want. If people are limiting the screen time of children, how how are they going to get them into their gaming ecosphere? But in another but in another way, this is anti-Apple. Because I always thought they kind of censored the market for the good. They kind of censored to be pro kids, you know what I mean, to be more parental controls. So this seems like two sides of Apple fighting against each other. You know, the one who wants to expand in a direction versus the one that wants to maintain family-friendly posture. My reaction when I first read this article was, what the f*** Apple? Seriously, what the f***? Because, and I guess I have a problem with, I mean, okay, yes, I understand why they're doing that. They want people to play these games because they realize that when people play these games, especially younger children, they're going to, and if they really get into those games, they're going to make in-app purchases. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand why they would want to 
roll back on those those apps that limit those uh, parental controls. But what irritates me about this is this is Apple interfering with my duty as a parent. If I think my son is spending too much time and too you know playing cell phone games, that's my call to limit their screen time, not Al, yours, Apple. Al, <laughs> Al, Al, you're not spewing the corporate line. No, oh, you shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah. Good parenting. What do, that has nothing to do with the hundreds upon thousands upon billions of dollars I'm making in app revenue. Now, shh, your child will be fine. Come on, shh. Oh, yes. Oh, what? what yeah, you're right. What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> but, no. Now, Al, you're not being a good capitalist right now. Come on. Okay. But, and also, but yeah, I mean, if I want to limit my son's time, or any parent, if they want to limit their kid's time, playing games on their cell phone, that's the parent's right. That's yeah. not something Apple should be interfering with. And I guess the other problem is we've, and I think we've spoken on this before, but gaming can be addictive. Because we have talked about, you know, the whole microtransactions and in-app purchases in the past. And one of the things with those, uh, and I think you had mentioned this, that we're growing up in an age where kids are going to start to see these in-app purchases as normal, and this has the potential to get them hooked on gambling later in life. Yeah, and not only that, there's a, there's a lot of games right now that you get X number of moves that you have. If you want to play longer, you have to spend money. Well, what if an, what if an app says, well, you've got a major amount of moves, now we're shutting it down. Well, that doesn't go with the money making scheme. That doesn't that doesn't go with all that. You know yeah. what I mean? You should play longer. You should spend some money on those gems to get another turn. Why would you want the parental controls to go? Oh, I know how many moves you get per day, and that's all the moves that you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things where I mean, I I don't think Apple is going to face a lot of backlash from it from the consumers, but. I personally just think that it's a low blow on Apple's part because, again, they're stepping in and they are essentially saying, okay, we maybe your kid has a problem with cell phone usage, but and here maybe there's an app out there that might help you solve that problem, but we're going to limit it because we want the problem to continue because it makes us money. And like I said, in in some ways, don't get me wrong, I think this is normal Apple, but I do think it conflicts with, because I do think Apple likes to, po you know, to have that posture that they're a very family-friendly type of device. You know what I mean? That you have all these things to be able to watch for your kids. I th and this is where I kind of wonder if Apple's not necessarily been as... Um, unique as they used to be the iphone comes out every year you know everything nothing's really new and exciting like it used to be i'm wondering if they're starting to go you know maybe we have to pull back from some of that family friendly stuff in order you know to maintain our revenue as this giant company yeah well this moves on to our opinion section and there was a article i read on theverge.com and it uh, was about 
YouTube. Which again, you might wonder, okay, why are we talking about YouTube on a gaming show? Well, just my personal opinion, I think that YouTube is a part of the gaming community um, because, you know, people like to go on to there and they like to watch the Let's Plays and again, for Final Fantasy Record Keeper, a, a game that I enjoy playing, if there's like a tougher fight and I'm having problems with it, sometimes I like to go on YouTube and see how other people are handling that boss fight. Uh, I've also posted a few videos on my YouTube channel with some of these tough boss fights showing how I overcome that obstacle. And you get some people out there who will make intelligent videos where they discuss a cultural aspect or a cultural interpretation of a video game. Now, this article from TheVerge.com is called The Golden Age of YouTube is Over. And it focused on a few you know, the more prominent YouTubers. Among them, probably the most well-known uh, YouTube gamer out there, PewDiePie. And as I've said before, I don't watch his programs. I watched part of one episode. I wasn't impressed. I don't hate on the guy. Um, if someone out there, if you like watching PewDiePie's videos, then hey, watch PewDiePie's videos. But uh, he was one of the people that they mentioned a lot in this uh, this article. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you think the golden age of YouTube is truly over? And to specifically to tie it into video games, do you think we're ever going to see another PewDiePie? Because, you know, he got famous and quite wealthy by posting videos of himself playing video games and commenting on them while he played. So do you think we're ever going to see another person get extremely wealthy and famous just by posting video game videos on YouTube? Not to PewDiePie's level, no. Um, the political environment right now, and even the business environment, will stop it. Google's own, Google and YouTube right now, uh, because of the adpocalypse, and even some of the stuff that was actually real, you know, where there were, you know, I don't know how to say it, but not safe for kids stuff embedded into kids stuff. And with the new algorithms that the YouTube people who've been in YouTube for, you know, 10, 15 years can't even figure out how the, how the algorithm works anymore. All these things together, I just don't see anything being like it was before because there's such an uphill battle now to face on YouTube. You know, you've got companies willing to use copyright strike against you as a weapon, even though they could get sued, knowing normal people that are doing YouTube videos don't have the cash to, you know, to actually legally go after them for false copyright strikes. We've got, you know, to, cause I mainly look at on YouTube, um, gaming journalism, you know, because a lot of those people's opinions are more true than some of the things that you find in publication uh, on the websites these days. And where you've got people like Ninja, who are pretty much just give me money, give me money, give me money, where are you going to find the people who are really out there and able to get, you know, to surpass all these things in order to become those those giant you know youtube names anymore yeah because the the article 
did talk about how YouTube was built on independent creators, people who had these ideas for programs they wanted to put together, but they didn't have money to put, you know, they didn't have a lot of money to sink into it. And honestly, some of those series have actually are become successful and some of them are really quite good. Like, for example, one series that I really got into um, was Marble Hornets. I don't know if you're familiar with that series at all. Mm. You know, about the Slenderman mythos. And I could not see something like that going on network TV. So I think one of the reasons I think that YouTube was a good platform for a series like that is because the way Marble Hornets went, the episodes weren't all of a uniform length. You know, it wasn't like a your normal TV sitcom where it's 22 minutes. You know, you had some episodes that were about 20, 30 minutes, but then you had other episodes that were only, you know, three or four minutes. So I think that Marble Hornets in that case worked quite well in the on YouTube. But they're saying that it's like some of the stuff that people came there to see because of the algorithms is starting to get surpassed by stuff that you can see on your, your regular TV, you know, clips from uh, talk shows or, you know, news programs and whatnot. And I think it's a shame because unfortunately the way the algorithm works is right now it is, it is uh, tends to favor longer videos with more longer watch time because of course yeah. they want to get that ad revenue in there. Uh, they mentioned. Well, have you have you seen some of the ads thing? I had one that was like a seven minute thing that they wanted me to have like six ads in it. I was like, Sheesh. how that? And they're like, don't use ad blocker though. I'm like, I wouldn't use ad blocker if there was one or two in there. But like, however many you stuffed into this video, why the hell not? Would I not use ad blocker? Because they compared uh, one of the viral videos from back in the day remember the charlie bit my finger mm -hmm. you know so those those viral videos which were so common and so popular in the early days of youtube would be a lot harder to find when you've got people when you've got people making videos that are you know 10 20 minutes in length as a way to you know to try to work with that algorithm that youtube has so I think it's sad. I don't, and I think I agree with you. I don't think we're ever going to see another YouTube gamer do what PewDiePie did, where he made a, a very large amount of money and became very famous just by playing video games. You know, and sometimes I wonder if the reason people hate on PewDiePie is because they look at what he does and they, they can't take him seriously for it. They think, oh, this guy just plays video games and make comments on it. Any idiot can do that. Now, have you ever tried doing that, just playing a video game and making comments on it while you play it? I do it all the time. <laughs> well, and actually record yourself doing it as a you know way to uh, you know for other people to see. No, that the the comments I make are my own, usually involving expletives, which would be <laughs> demonetized right away. <laughs> yes, but. <laughs> See, and I can tell you from experience, it's not as easy as people like to think it is. I haven't done one of these in a while, but 
I used to do a series on my geekery in general show called Al's Bargain Bin Adventures, where I would go to GameStop or any place that sold used video games, and you know sometimes you'll see games there that are selling being sold for like a couple of bucks. So what I would do is pick up these you know two three dollar games and record a video of myself playing it and giving my first com you know my my first impressions and and commentary on it. And again, it's not as easy as people like to think it is because, well, yes, anyone can do it, but the thing is, can you do it well, and can you keep the listener entertained and engaged? Because I know there's at least two games that I started playing, and then, you know, three that I started playing and then just stopped doing because I just couldn't think of enough stuff to say about the game on the spot like that, where it's oh, like, oh God, okay... Yeah. Yeah, it's like if I would have did this as an episode, it would have been extremely boring. And there and there are YouTube people that I've gone to tried to watch the content and just go, oh, I can't sit through this anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah, it's just not working. Yeah. So I'm sure that I hope that YouTube does come to its senses and it does try to move back to a type of platform that can reward those independent content creators. Because I think, again, they take risks and they do things that you wouldn't see on normal normal network TV. Again, like I said, Marble Hornets. You would never see that as a TV series on ABC or NBC or CBS. And I said, I don't think we're going to see another PewDiePie because, I mean, let's face it. How many YouTube gamers are there out there that do what PewDiePie does where they... You know, they play video games and make comments on it. Oh, yeah. And don't forget now YouTube has, with with the advent of Twitch, which is live streaming, you've got a whole nother competitor, at least in that market. You know, Twitch has its own issues, but it's still, it's got a rabid fan base, you know, for the people who like Twitch streamers and whatnot. I mean, that's one of the things is that... Uh, and the, I guess maybe that's the happiness of uh, capitalism itself, you know. The more YouTube changes, you know, screws over its people who are putting actual content up, you know, the more they will start looking for other ways to store content and view it. You know what I mean? It's, you know, we. I don't know how Twitch got created or why, but you know what I mean? You know, it had to come from somewhere. There had to be a reason somebody figured that they needed to have Twitch. So, and that's what I think is that instead of you know a YouTube platform, because Google obviously can't handle it. I mean, from everything I've heard, trying to get a hold of customer service, trying to get a hold of you know anybody at YouTube, totally horrendous. If if they can't handle it eventually you know the youtube market will have to go on to a different platform yeah or some another platform will rise to take its place yeah and that's the sad thing because all youtube has to do is figure out a way to police itself you know it's kind of like have you ever heard of the steam controversy i think i've heard of some of that yeah was that where like people were up in arms against Steam because some of the games on there were were basically a piling mess. Yeah, because Steam will not curate its own collection to make sure that, as Jim Sterling put it, the game actually works when it's started up. 
they won't even make sure that it actually works before somebody can upload it, you know, and get money for it. All they would have to do is do some quality testing on it and figure it out. We're seeing the same thing with YouTube. You know, they one, yeah, there's bad things in comments, but at the same time, they're demonetizing people now because of the comments, things that the producers have no control over at all. So that, that's why I'm saying is if if YouTube can't figure it out, because some of the reason why we have the Epic Store right now is because Steam won't police its own gar- its own garbage. You know, same thing with YouTube. YouTube can't police itself. They're making all these rules and ch- changing the rules whenever they want. You know, eventually people are going to get sick of it. Yeah, and the other problem is in uh, so one of my YouTubers that I've watched in the past, Matt Pat with Game Theorists. Uh, he had a story he did a while ago about, and this is just another one of those uh, dark sides with YouTube, that there was a, uh, he was part of a company called Defy Media, where, and, and just the way that YouTube works nowadays, you almost need to be part of one of these conglomerations, if anything, to, uh, you know, if anything, to help protect yourself against, cop, you know, frivolous copyright suits. Because yeah. he was saying that the because they went out of business uh, last November, and Matt Pat was saying that there were a total of about fifty content creators in uh, you know that Defy Media collectively owed one point seven million dollars to, and the. And I know he did a couple of videos about it, and I can't say I blame him for getting mad because, I mean, I'm not, let's see, 1.7 million. See, divided by, like I said, 50 creators. Assuming that each of those creators was owed about the same amount of money, that breaks down to about $34,000 per person. And he had another uh, follow up video he did about it where the bank that was handling the you know the case and the the liquidation they were they basically haven't made it a priority to make sure that the people who who were robbed by this company are going to get their money back so it's sad and again it just shows that there can be unfortunately be a a very cutthroat uh, side of youtube well see and that's the entire problem this particular thing happened because when unless you know the ins and outs of YouTube, which a lot of content creators, even though they've been working on this stuff for so long, didn't know. They felt they needed these giants, you know, conglomerate conglomerations. And in in fact, in the in the situation, you know, th- this money should be going automatically straight to these creators' pockets. It shouldn't go through a third party. But because of how it works, they take a certain percentage or a certain fee, and then move it on to them. It's still always, and that was Matt Pat's biggest thing, is it was always their money. They were just part of this channel. But since when they shut down, this was part of their assets. Because since they get the money first, there's there's nothing to show that each check was made out to this creator. All of, all of, all of the checks are probably just signed to defy media 
and they would use something like Social Blade, or there might have been a breakdown, you know, to the check at that time of who gets what money. But yeah. because all of it goes through that, there's no way to tell. And this was all created, again, because Google can't manage YouTube. I think it's either too large for them or they're putting their smarts in other directions instead of managing their own platforms. And actually, to be honest with you, Google has, we've seen it currently, Google is very ADD, you know what I mean? It moves from one thing to the other and doesn't, you know, doesn't always put their best foot forward to maintain their their stuff. Yeah, and the, I'm sure they've just, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the article mentioned it, because I know we've talked about how there's just an insane amount of content that gets uploaded to YouTube every minute. I mean, another possibility why we're not, we might not see another, you know, PewDiePie is that YouTube is also making, made this change. No, I'm not going to go there. I was going to talk a little about, bit about the whole Logan Paul controversy, but I don't know if we really want to get into that. I, I don't even want to. It's it, that entire stuff can be blown out of proportion and whatnot. And I forget what Logan Paul did, but I remember for the cutie pie thing, he makes a joke, and all of a sudden he's the Antichrist. So it's like, yeah. And I know you mentioned that that was taken out of what he was doing was taken out of context, which, and I know there was a Tech Review USA did another review about that again, where they talked about how. Again, some of the stuff that he was saying, yeah, it was taken on a context, but and that's and that's partially why I am also thinking there won't be is just the current political climate. I mean, I in anime we've been watching on YouTube the movement for the Kick Vic movement versus the I Stand with Vic movement. We got YouTubers having their daughters, you, uh, YouTuber slash uh, personality called Renfamous. She's currently trying to dox uh, the Umbrella Guy's daughter and willing to give that information out to anybody on the Internet. Yeah, and that's just dangerous because I've heard uh, I, I've heard about doxing and how you don't know what's you don't know who's going to get that information and what they're going to do with it. Yeah but. The, you know, yeah. but this is what we're living with now is we've got such political problems with free speech and just speech in general that. And YouTube and YouTube it is part of it. And so until some of that clears up, you're not going to be able to say whatever you want. And there's going to be times where, you know what I mean, somebody's going to make a joke. You know, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be in good taste. But it's still a joke. But people are going to overreact or whatnot. I mean, look at uh, the guys. I, and I don't know the full story about this, so. But Sargon of Akkad or whatnot made a kind of racist thing because he was trying to point out that it was racist or whatnot, lost his Patreon account, lost a lot of, a lot of you know, gumption or whatnot with everybody. And the thing was taken out of context, out of the actual platform that he was working on, didn't really have, break any of the terms of service. But because of this whole politicized speech movement, he had to lose his. He had to be deplatformed. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things. How do you survive in a world where freedom of speech doesn't really mean freedom of speech anymore? Yeah, but then there's also the saying, though, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from responsibility, 
where, or exactly. no, maybe not, or, okay, that's not the best way to say it. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from the consequences of your speech. Of your speech. So, yeah. So it's not, I know, I know what you mean. I, yes, people take things out of context and there's, ultimately there's no easy answers, but yeah, I think we can both agree we're probably not going to see the next PewDiePie who makes a truckload of money just by playing video games on YouTube. So wouldn't it be nice? I wish I could have gotten on that train. I wish I could be making truckloads of money playing games on YouTube as well. <laughs> My God, how many how many games have I gone through that I could have actually been like? You could have been making this, money. This, this is my Let's Play 129. Let's go. This is my Let's Play of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I hope to make money off of this. But anyways, well, thanks a bunch for joining us, everyone. And we will talk to you next time. And until later, keep on gaming. Hey, this is Nick and Alex. And we're here to tell you a little bit more about Dungeon Junkies. Now, we're a podcast that's based in Austin, Texas. And we are hell-bent on making you laugh. Absolutely. We have some fantastic storytelling. Uh, with some badass characters and even better music, as well as a ton of jokes to make you laugh. So join Fenworth, Taryn, and Dr. Euphoria, and our sexy DM, Kenny, on a quest to save the world or destroy it. I guess whichever one comes first. (laughs) And you can also check out our Real Talk episodes where we get meta inside our campaign and really figure out the depths of our characters and also the story. So check us out on www.dungeonjunkies.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dungeon Junkies, because not all adventurers are meant to be heroes. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.